Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by the University of California, committed to advancing our world through discovery. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. The University of California, the power of public. This is Face the Nation. (laughs) No, it's not. No, it's not. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. For April 17th, 2015, the Chicken in Every Burrito Bowl edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. <laughs> Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hi, I just got your joke. That was a Hoover joke. Yes, a it Hoover was a Rubio a Hoover, joke. A Hoover, a Hoover joke. No, a Hoover, a Hoover Clinton, Clinton joke. joke. Clinton had Don't burrito Don't think ball. Rubio because burrito. Yeah, that was my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's the Republican. I figured he'd said something nice about in every yeah, pot. Yeah, yeah. Nice, but, nice save. Uh, yeah, that thanks. is John Dickerson of Slate and CBS News. John, you didn't. You had a quiet week. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm happy to be back. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm happy with all kinds of things. We will talk about this in Slate Plus. But for the the Gabfest listener who didn't pay attention to Twitter or the news or anything this week, John has a new job. What's your new job, John? My new job is that in the uh, early part of the summer, I will take over for Bob Schieffer as host of Face a Nation. That is great. And But will you continue to GabFest, John? I will. It's a part of my process. I'll be on the GabFest and Whistle Stop will continue and I'll also uh, continue my writing. It's it's amazing. Mazel tov. We've, we've mazel tov in private, but uh, this is... We've been basking in the glow of your glory all week with such um, enjoyment. Thank you. We will, we will uh, Slate Plus listeners, lucky you, we're going to have a special Slate Plus Dickerson segment where we'll, we'll learn about uh, how John got this job and what he might do with it and how he prepares for it and things like that. The, the excellent Dickersonian process segment that we've uh, come to love. So if you are a Slate Plus listener, you will be able to get that. If not, join up. I think you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, I think is the, the special secret code. On this week's GabFest, Hillary launches the SpaceX rocket that is the Clinton campaign. Took off this week, immediately set course for Iowa via Chipotle. <laughs> then Marco Rubio also launched his presidential campaign. Does he have a chance? And then Congress finally found something it can agree on, the bipartisan bill to require congressional approval of the Iran deal overwhelms the Obama administration. What will it mean for the prospects of a deal? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and, and that uh, Face the Nation Slate Plus segment. Hillary Clinton is off and running with a brief, modest video, a video that felt 
a little bit like a like a pharmaceutical ad or an insurance company ad. Oh, I disagree. 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 Okay, she we'll disagrees. get to that in one second. She disagrees. The, she thinks it's a car insurance a ad. Car insurance ad. No, the, 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 I de- not. the Democratic like, anointed the anointed Democratic nominee has begun her campaign. This we'll get to that in one second. She hopped in a van, a van, and immediately headed for Iowa. Driven by some Secret Service agents, she stopped anonymously at a Chipotle in Ohio, where she had a oh, that's chicken the burrito, burrito bowl. Okay. You, gotcha. you still haven't gotten the joke. You <laughs> pretended to get the joke <laughs> two sure. minutes ago. You two minutes ago, you were certainly pretending that you had gotten the joke. I told you I didn't know it was a Clinton joke. Now all the dots oh have been God. connected. Uh, for next week on Slate Plus, we're going to offer a diagramming of that joke and getting to yes on it. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Wow. Okay. okay. <laughs> she did. The, she stopped at community college. She stopped at a coffee shop. Probably other small businesses. She's beginning her conversational tour. So Emily, talk to us about that video, which is apparently not at all like an ad for an insurance I really, company. Okay, it was like an ad, but it was a really good ad. It was like one of the new ads I don't hate watching. I really liked that video. Look, I have a lot of issues with Hillary Clinton. I do not mean to suggest she is not. Um, a difficult candidate and often a hard person to like. I really liked that video. Now, I am a person who... What did you like about it? Well, I thought that actually they caught all those people at fairly natural-seeming moments. It was much less stiff and car insurance-like than I expected as I began to watch it. I found the people in it almost entirely endearing and heartwarming and um, upbeat in a way that... um, I really enjoyed watching. I confess, maybe everyone else thought it was sappy. I don't mind sappy. I'm like a person who car- cries at, you know, phone, com- long distance telephone service commercials. So for me, it was totally appealing. Anymore. Well, when they, they did, did the I cried. I, I totally share your uh, your mawkishness. I also enjoyed it as a piece of uh, emotional manipulation. And when she showed up at the end, I was like, okay, you know, the fact that this is your idea of what's great about America, all these different kinds of people trying to find their way into the American dream, the lack of, for once, it was completely uncynical and uncomplicated, and I just, like, went for that. But, I mean, I, you mean I don't uncynical know, in, indefensible. Uncynical yeah. in its purely in the way it looked, because it was obviously very cynical in its design. Well, obviously. I mean, yeah. they had something for everyone, but I was also interested in that cynical because it seems so... Cynical is the wrong word. So no, calculated, 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 calculated. calculated. Well, yeah, I guess... Calculated. Cyn- calcul- yeah, the, the fine line between calculation and cynicism, <laughs> but I... Yeah, yeah. But it was smart, too, thing. by the way. Go ahead. Well, what I was struck by, and again, I'm probably just wrong here, but I actually thought it was like a very liberal view. The fact that they were so calculated about getting this, you know, very uh, distinct picture of diversity, I wasn't sure that was something that really was going to appeal all that much beyond Clinton's base. There is a single mom in it. There are gay people in it. I mean, maybe I'm like very 1990s, but I was like, oh, she's embracing all these different types of families. And that seemed, I'm not going to call it brave, but it seemed distinct to me. John, a new vision of the mainstream. John, on the GAFS last week, you outlined Hillary Clinton's strategy, and she immediately seems to be pursuing it, which is a small game of small ball. So what's the theory? She, she, she appears to be planning to spend the next 19 months 
in people's living rooms and going to every freaking coffee shop, every independent coffee shop in the country. Mm-hmm. So when you say small ball, you mean as a campaigning technique, not right. in terms of what issues she's addressing, right? Right. Yes. So okay. we, yeah, I, um, I spent a couple of days, days with her in Iowa, on, starting in eastern Iowa and then moving towards the central part of the state in Des Moines. It was like you say, it was it was it was a little bit like an arranged marriage, you know, where the couple who've never met go off on their first date and the entire village comes to watch them because there were these little events where at this one community college, there were um, six people at the table, C-shaped table in a garage used to teach kids how to uh, become mechanics. And so there were two cars with their hoods open and these engines right behind them on these blocks with um they looked like like heart transplants ready to go and so it was a like a very carefully arranged scene and she walked in like she was walking into a bilateral meeting with um world leaders i mean she looked like the person who's had all the jobs she's had and it was the tension that it's a part of this campaign which is she is this political celebrity she has been a world figure is a world figure and yet she has to go both actually has to do it and then also has to be seen doing it, which is spending time in close proximity with actual real voters trying to find out what they have to say. And this was not a real conversation in any way. It wasn't like you bump into them on the street and have a, a chat. This was a you know highly staged event. But what I can let's I'll throw this back out to you guys. Is it possible, even if it's a highly staged event, she did talk to these People, uh, one was a high school student who earned some credit towards college. Another was an instructor who taught kids. Another was a single mom divorced with three kids who was going back to get some training to help with her uh, ability to get a better job. I mean, it was an hour-long conversation about policy. Even though it was totally staged, there were actually things that did come across that have to do with actually what people are actually experiencing. Did they come across to her or did they come across from her to them? Uh, From them to her. I mean, again— I've been to a thousand of these with politicians and they go in and they nod their head and they like interject and ask questions and then they move on. They just need to be what they're doing is they need to be seen looking like they're listening to regular people. But having said that, what she has that other politicians don't have just because she's been around for a while and because she has experience in this is when the when the mother of three was talking about the cost, not just of college and community college, but of um all the other things you have to buy, textbooks, or she talked about this program she set up in Arkansas for women who were trying to go back to school who had these kinds of costs. And what happens if your car breaks down and you can't make it to class? So there was, she set up a scholarship fund to help women who were in that position. So she has this history in her past that she can refer to. I mean, she doesn't look like a woman who has any of the abrasions of daily living that the folks around her have. And she walks in and is encased in this political celebrity. But she does have this past she can refer to. And she, the other thing that strikes you is she's very much the um, student who has done her homework. She knows that the average student loan debt of Iowa kids is $30,000. Right. She remembers that the one girl in high school had 48 credits towards college. She remembers a phrase that the guy, she's good at the like at that part of do, it. Do you think, this is to either of you, but maybe more to you, John, since you have been on these trips, is it important that she do these small events or is it important that she be seen doing these small events? I think do you, I presume they're all open to the press. Does she ever do anything which isn't open? Oh, yeah. To the press? There was a lot that wasn't open to the press. What she was doing behind the scenes was meeting with activists, particularly in some cases, people who had supported Obama in 2008. And I think what they're trying to do, there are a lot of reasons to campaign in Iowa, but what they're trying to do is close off, tighten up all their support in the Democratic Party and get everyone 
kind of uh, rallying and excited and enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton because all of these stories that are out there waiting to be written by those of us who are covering these campaigns and looking for some kind of conflict. There are a lot of stories about, you know, Bill de Blasio didn't uh, immediately endorse her. Therefore, she's got a problem on the left. She has no problem on the left at the moment. What was that mumble? She was saying stabbed Emily was in the back. The, oh. That was the New York Post headline. I liked that. The De Blasio. Emily, headline. do you think? Do you think that Hillary needs to be seen doing these small events, or she actually needs to do these small events? Well, she for sure needs to be seen. My question about whether she actually gets something out of the events, John, is whether the people who go to them actually talk like normal people and tell you real things about their lives or whether they get so self-conscious yeah. and scripted that I mean it seems like part of this is actually on them right. to transmit you know the real things that politicians journalists that everybody needs to hear yeah. about what they're experiencing it's a great question I mean it's all again it's so staged that that you kind of don't want to give it any credit for being anything because it's just but there was a kid who uh, was in the um, – we were at a fruit packing plant um, Wednesday. And this kid who bought a bowling alley after he got out of college was talking about how he has two employees and he does everything from fix the bowling, um, the mechanism that resets the pins to flips the burgers that you have to flip just once because they're a certain kind of frozen burger. He was explaining – and I thought it was a pretty good line. He said, my biggest line item on my budget is my college loan debt. In other words, he factors that into his business because it's such a small business that that all the expenses are kind of mixed and mingled with his entire life. And in that case, there were there were authentic stories of life. In fact, this other woman talked about having uh, been a breast cancer survivor. She's on her husband's insurance. But then uh, I I can't remember if I'm going to get the details of this right. But uh, her fear was that if um, she lost her husband's insurance or he lost his job and the Affordable Care Act went away, how would she get covered because she has a pre-existing condition? Now, we've heard the stories about pre-existing conditions before in the world, so it wasn't a revelation. But the way in which she conveyed her story, she was a she owned a like soap and perfume store. This was all a roundtable of entrepreneurs, was a real and authentic story. And and what I think salvages all of these um, staged events that all candidates go through, and this is on us, is that there was actually a lot of like policy and, and is w- would be to say, like, let's elevate the actual conversation here about all the stuff they talked about and, you know, use presidential campaigns as a way to talk about what actually people face. We don't we're not compelled. We're not forced to cover what she was wearing and how she carried herself. We could, in fact, cover what they talked about because uh, there was enough substance there. Emily. If you saw Saturday Night Live this week, there was a they opened with a Hillary Clinton launching her campaign, and it was the Hillary Clinton that we've all known, super controlling, ravenous for power, the basic sort of model parody that it's existed forever. Hillary Clinton has been in the national public light for twenty five years, essentially. She has more or less had the same reputation for 25 years. It hasn't changed that much. It's changed a bit because she was Secretary of State and she was a senator and served with respectability and and humility there. Is it possible in the next year and a half for her to actually change what her image is and to be be a small ball person? I think it is possible because of two things. The most important one is the end of the primary season in 2008, where she broke through her own brittle persona and seemed to, like, become a real person in front of our eyes when Obama really challenged her. It was like she was cornered and she played really good defense. And 
I mean, as just an observer, that's the most like real Hillary Clinton and the most empathy I've ever felt for her. And the second example, I think, are that she's had moments like that as Secretary of State. Now, she was like exuding authority and uh, and capability in that role. So it wasn't the same sort of like my back is to the wall, you know, I'm fighting for my life. But I still felt like there she let us through into her what's what I hope, I guess, is her real self. You know, the thing about Hillary Clinton is there is a reason that she is walled off and guarded and a little bit paranoid, because in the 90s in particular, she faced enormous suspicion and skepticism from the press and the public in this way that now reads to me as, and read to me some, somewhat at the time as like really anti-feminist. It seemed like there was one way to be the first lady or the wife of Bill Clinton running for president. She wasn't it. And so she clashed with um, the values of the country in this way that was a real disadvantage to her. And then obviously, like, there was Whitewater. Then there's the Monica Lewinsky moment in which she seems anti-feminist, honestly, and like the weird non-victim lashing out at Monica role she played. And then most lately, the email, um, she, you know, her you private she server business. You thought she seemed anti-feminist in the Lewinsky scandal? I thought yeah, that was I the most human was. moment of her life. I thought that was wonderful well, because what you because it was it was she acted like you know everyone was the line about everyone like mor- everyone mourns their own way everyone she responded to a terrible embarrassing horrible adulterous situation with what seemed to be genuine emotion and rage and and it, she attacked Monica Lewinsky but like what I I don't know that felt like. That was tribal. Well, that but was, when you combine that them with her attack was... on all the other women who Clinton is alleged to have slept with or had dalliances with, it starts to seem like you are calling everybody trailer trash who, you know, it's a problem when you have a husband who's doing those things. I know, but that's, things. Yeah, that seems to me human. Yourself. That seems like a I, human yeah, response. it's human. It's, it's human. A, it's I a still non... It's... Let me ahead, ask you a question. Did, uh, um, one thing that I wonder if you, you guys feel is a sustainable posture is she's referring to herself as the people's champion so a do you find that a useful frame for her candidacy and b at her first event this was not present at her second but she opened her first event by talking about ceos who get paid 300 times what the average worker gets paid and she talked about hedge fund managers who have lower taxes than regular folks which was a very so it's one thing to call yourself the people's champion. It's another thing to throw that in as your first bid. She then didn't talk about it at all on her second day, which I wondered if we'll see next week when she's in New Hampshire, whether she keeps that up. Because one is kind of people's champion, income inequality, okay. Other, when you talk about CEO pay and hedge fund managers, you have, it seems to me, two challenges. One, she gets a lot of donations from CEOs and hedge fund managers and has been associated with that, with Wall Street and, and big business. Um, So there's a hypocrisy problem possibly there. But secondly, it's also a different kind of language. It's a kind of a more of an Elizabeth Warren-y kind of language than than a kind of new Democrat Bill Clinton kind of language. I mean, hallelujah, in my view. And I bet she did that because there is concern on the left that she's you know, owned by the banks and will get into office and be the kind of Democrat who doesn't really rock the system in any way. I mean, I felt the same sense of cheering her on when she started talking about campaign finance reform and the undue influence of super wealthy donors, although, of course, she's also out there courting those donors. So there's that. There's an enormous public appetite, public rage about 
the power that the the very wealthy have in this country. And I think it's perfectly legitimate for her to stake a claim to being the people's champion and to be the to attack on those issues in the sense of that that she's the tribune of the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party is much more correct on these issues than the Republicans. And certainly there is no Republican. If Elizabeth Warren were in the race, it would be hard for Hillary Clinton to make this claim. Elizabeth Warren isn't in the race. It's a bunch of Republicans whose positions on these issues are so far to the right of hers, so pro-wealth, so pro-the rich people. Even the ones who are playing a populist card are really much more pro-rich people. Uh, they still want to cut taxes on the wealthy. And so I think she's able to – she can't make that claim in her own personal life because she is a very rich person. But she, I think, can be the, the standard bearer for those issues. Because, but then doesn't because she – why doesn't that class be. warfare, David? Why doesn't she get attacked from the right on that ground? Oh, it is class warfare. But I, but I think the country is ripe for some class warfare. People are ready for it. They're very angry about the disparities, the inequalities in this country. And, and, I, I, and it's also – and I think – and there are Republican candidates who are running – on those disparities. I mean, Rand Paul's message, uh, he doesn't use the, the hedge fund CEO line. By the way, Ross Perot, we used to talk about CEO pay all the time in his candidacy. And I think when Rand Paul talks about the inequities and blames Republicans for those inequities, he's trying to go at what David's talking about. Let's, let's uh, wrap on a trivial subject, which is her logo, which <laughs> got, so she has a very uh, distinct logo. It's a an H, but it's made out of, um, you've seen it, two blue towers, maybe? Two blue uh, Yeah, that's good. Towers Columns. pierced by a red arrow heading to the right. And the logo was mocked. It was derided. It was called too simple. It was called a, that it <laughs> invoked the, the 9-11 because it was these towers getting crashed into by an airplane. But I think it's a brilliant logo. It's already... She has owned the arrow. Someone wrote a great piece about this. Is the arrow is an incredible symbol. You see it in all kinds of logos. You see it in the famously hidden in the FedEx logo and Amazon logo. The ag- arrow signifies action, signifies moving forward. And she, in one fell swoop with a single letter, has grabbed the arrow. And, and I, think it's a, I think it's a fantastic move. I really do. You guys have no opinion about it. Uh, no, I do. I mean, I have no design sense is what I don't have. But I like it because it's so different. When I first started looking around for like Hillary Clinton logo, what's this fuss all about? What came up was her old logo. And I was like, whoa. Yeah, it's the old logo. looks so boring. Right. Oh my God. It's like that flag. The waving flag. Oh God. (laughs) And then I saw the new one and I was like, oh, this looks kind of Silicon Valley. I mean, this is like trying to do something different with this old staid form that nobody ever takes a risk on. So I guess I was glad to see her just taking a risk. I felt that way. I thought that perhaps there was this was going to be a campaign of some risk taking when I heard that she, that she'd gotten in her car and was going to drive to Iowa from New York. But if there has ever been a more anodyne road trip, I don't know if it has <laughs> been produced in this country. I mean, it was like, I mean, yes, she was in a car going from the East Coast to to the Iowa, but this was not your family's regular, right? She was not music. like stopping by the sheets for the popcorn chicken. Well, you know, I, what I what I thought was, if I were on a road trip, I would have, you know, I would have used uh, Yelp or, or yes uh, something to find a 
find a better restaurant. Right. Why I know. You you got, this is, I mean, well, I once went to a uh, P.F. Chang's when we were on the road. When we were into the, we were on the road somewhere and I went to like P.F. Chang's because I like P.F. Chang's and whatever. There was one near. And like I was mocked for three days by all the other members of the press corps because it's like you're traveling to new places and you go to a chain. Like so. And I've I've taken that on and internalized it in my own that's why Riley's in Cedar Rapids is a great uh, diner. John is not going to play some so, Iowa card. No, but here's the card to play at, at at this place is that on one wall there is a Wallace bumper sticker and then across the diner is a picture of Obama visiting that diner. It was a nice like arc of history happening right there over my If uh, you own a quesadilla. diner in Iowa. Oh yeah, you gonna... had Wallace and Obama in your diner. Yeah, yeah. It's not yes. it's not hard. Better than Wallace and Gromit. The GapFest is sponsored this week by Stamps.com. One of the best recommendations that small businesses can take is to use Stamps.com. Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping so convenient and saves you time and money. You can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your computer. And once you try it, you won't go back to making time-consuming trips to the post office. Stamps.com, of course, has a special offer for GabFest listeners. Use our promo code GABFEST to get a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale that calculates exact postage for letters and packages, so there's no guesswork, and up to $55 in free postage. For the special offer, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. So we're moving on to our next topic, which is Marco Rubio. But as I was writing myself notes about Marco Rubio, I was struck mentally by the fact that we are not talking about Walter Scott and Michael Slager, that here was a story, which last week we upended the show, switched around what we were doing. We were like, this is huge. It's gigantic. Yeah. Here we are a week later. It's gone. Well, that was the question. It's not gone. It's kind of gone. It is not gone. No, it is not gone. First of all, they charged Michael Slager with murder right away. So that is like the criminal justice system ramping up, doing what it's right. supposed to do. Sure. I'm not saying it's gone because for He's bad reasons. It's I'm gone just, it's as, gone. A, uh, it's gone oh, as are a, you... a moment, a, a public, you But know. I think that's partly because it, it, when the system works in the way that legitimizes the feelings of anguish and protest, then that makes you feel like good. And also there's been a lot of good reporting about North Charleston and the, you know, racial divide between the police and the community, the over-policing that was going on, et cetera. We're just choosing not to talk about it. Well, also there's... You have no Ferguson situation where you have no nights of protest. You have no Garner situation where you have protest and anger and, and sort of the newspapers heavily involved in it. it. It is, Emily, I don't, I think it's for good reason. I think it's because people behaved well and because there did, because he, primarily because he was charged with murder, that it hasn't caused a national conversation. The conversation isn't happening because the murder charge came instantly. So now there's there isn't actually a discussion beyond that, oh, he's been charged with murder. I just disagree with that. I think there is still a discussion going on about policing and why these incidents are happening. But because of the murder charges, you can see this as the culmination of all of the protests in Ferguson and over Eric Garner, that this time the system did what it is supposed to do, which was to bring criminal charges in a really obvious seeming moment of police wrongdoing. Okay, let's go to the actual topic. <laughs> I just was struck. Sorry, I did. I wanted just to mention it. So our the actual topic, Marco Rubio also announced he's running for president this week. He timed it uh, to the Clinton announcement, it seems. <laughs> he wanted to have a contrast. He's young. She's not so young. He is running a kind of Obama campaign. He's the young 
senator. He has an interesting family background, interesting ethnic background. Uh, he's handsome. He gives a great speech. He he's is smart so on cute. policy. So appealing looking, isn't he? I look at pictures of him and it, you just think like, yeah, go ahead. Lead the country. Sorry. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that was awesome! Yeah. We're gonna have to I send that. that. We're gonna have to send that to Paul. Yeah, Emily, you did say that about Obama. I did. They're like they hit the same sweet spot for me. I probably shouldn't. Add, and they're like, what? How Keep old? Going. <laughs> Keep he's going. He's probably like a little younger than me, but not like he's unacceptably. He's forty-three. Yeah, he's okay. totally he's in the, my he's in the zone. age. Perfect. He is in the zone. Yeah, I just think he like Emily, he looks. Audio does not record how red Emily is right now. Okay. Wait, okay, if, if you had She's to pick between if else. you had to pick between Obama and and Rubio, just aesthetically. Well, I mean, it's like picking between your, you know, your first love and your new flame. I mean, I still I have this set like deep I've had this crush on Obama for longer, so, you know, I'll stick with him for now. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. I, I, I didn't realize that the uh, computer screen had that um that the pixelation could really convey red that Accurately, <laughs> you talking about my face? Yeah, yeah we're, face watching very, Emily, right? yeah. we're watching Emily. We're watching. I'm not embarrassed. <laughs> Although I guess I'm blushing anyway. Um, it's my ardor, not my uh, embar- not my bashfulness. Well, do you think Emily, as a as a as a let's move to the substance here, as a no no as a matter of of uh, electoral uh, campaign strategy, that this Obama reprise is going to work. Well, I do think the best thing Rubio has going for him is the sort of generational freshness he offers. But it's not the only thing. I mean, he also has Florida. He has his effort to come up with some kind of bipartisan immigration reform. It didn't work, Hmm. but he tried really hard. I wish he wasn't backing away from it, but he tried. What else does he have, John? I don't know. Maybe that's kind of smart. He's He's smart. smart. He's a really good talker. Right, right. That's part of his appeal to me is he's a really good talker. He's likable. People, Obama. everyone likes him. Yeah. I like him. Uh, yeah. I, I think never that, met him. And, but, I, uh, but he just seems like somebody you, right, he, um, you'd like. He's he's enthusiastic. He's done his homework. He has second and third answers to questions. I think um, for the Republican Party, this is an analogy almost is so tenuous, I don't want to use it for fear of it breaking totally apart. But people in the last race used to say they liked to have Newt Gingrich in the race because they liked to have somebody who was like, like have throwing who, look, who seemed meaner than they no, did. No, no, no. <laughs> they liked to have somebody who was like mixing it up and throwing ideas around and they and their people have talked about Senator Rubio in a similar way, which is to say they really like to belong to a party that could have Marco Rubio as a presidential candidate. They may not think he can run the country. They may not think He's better than, you know, Scott Walker or Jeb Bush or something, but they really like him and they like particularly after the Republican Party has gotten so much grief um, to have somebody who is as appealing as Emily says and who, um, you know, who can hold a rally and have lots and lots of people there speaking Spanish and just kind of presenting a new face of the Republican Party. Um, and that's part of his Why appeal. can't he run the country? Is he supposed to be a bad manager or is it just oh. that he's a senator and not a governor? No, I think, well, I think it's the latter. I think there is a strain of people and we'll see how big it is because there are three freshman senators running with no executive experience. And there is a there was a group of Republicans who spent a lot of time talking about how it was disqualifying that President Obama had no executive experience and had oh, never... Oh, that was last time right. around. Right. I think that's... And that's easily... That. That's easily overcome as a... Uh, you know, if you can make people excited, 
they, they'll blow past the requirements for executive experience. What's interesting about that, though, then, is that you are relying on the same power of rhetoric to pick your candidate as the Democrats used in 2008 and that Republicans said, you know, you're just electing this guy because he's appealing and he's a good speaker. And I think when you get we can have a long and we hopefully will for the next year and a half have a long conversation about what makes a good president and what doesn't and how the skills they uh, demonstrated on the stump give us clues about that or not. But it was interesting. I thought that Marco Rubio, unlike Cruz and Paul, who both tried to make a case for how they were going to change the country using their skills, both of them basically said, I'm going to create such a big movement in the country, we're going to force Washington to um, change its ways. Rubio never talked about what he'd done in either in Florida or in the Senate and how he was going to pull this transformation about. Um, It was all pure kind of singing the song of America and how he and his family embodied it. And that's just an interesting and different approach. But again, it's one that relies pretty heavily on rhetoric. John, as I look at this field, it feels to me as though all the serious candidates are now in that if you think about the the ones who haven't come in, Christie's not going to come in. Sounds like he's just his approval ratings are terrible among Republicans. He doesn't appear to offer an alternative. Among New Jerseyites. Um, people like Carson and Huckabee and Santorum are, are novelty candidates. They're not really going to go anywhere. And so you have the five big ones, Bush, uh, Cruz, Walker, Rubio, and Paul. Paul, for reasons you pointed out, is not probably is not is, is an asterisk. Cruz so also asterisk. Well, yeah, well, although I don't know, Cruz, Cruz has the ability. I was talking to a Republican friend of mine about this just to he has money. He's clearly shown the ability to get money. And he has an organization he has people who are really passionate about him uh, who turn out and vote. And so maybe he he sneaks in. But what is the Rubio scenario in this? Rubio Rubio benefits. Rubio wins if what happens if Bush stumbles. Can I ask an yeah, can I ask an, a, a, how big of a problem is Bush for Rubio? Seems like it's kind of huge because they're like actually fighting in the same important state. Well, I don't think it's a problem so much in the state. It's the problem in the in the lane, which is to say, if Bush is the quote unquote establishment candidate, he has a a pretty good place in that lane. Rubio can steal some of those votes because even while, well, he can just steal some of those votes if he were. If people thought he were a viable candidate, the cliche, which I think is sort of true, is that Rubio is everybody's second choice. So that if you're a social conservative and you really love Mike Huckabee, you don't object to Rubio. He's just not as much of a social conservative as Huckabee. And if you're a patriot liberty type person, you know, Rubio might be your guy if you didn't like Paul or Cruz. I think he does have a problem on the immigration, you know, the, the Gang of Eight and his support for comprehensive immigration reform. You mean he has a political problem, has a political though you problem. respect or I respect his efforts. So he has a, a bit of a political problem there. Um, so I think one interesting thing to watch with him on foreign policy is he's argued, and this goes back to the competency question, he's argued basically nobody knows foreign policy like I do. And so he has said, you know, Scott Walker may be a governor, governor and know how to make decisions. And that's great. He can make decisions. But in, and there's some merit to this argument. But you get in the White House, you're going to be presented with A and B. And yeah, sure, you can choose between A and B. But if you don't know the context of what you're getting and the world that you're facing, you may not realize that the real option is C, the one that's not even being presented to you. I just don't think that's a winning argument. Well, I don't think people care about foreign uh, policy no, that much. Well, they have uh, a very simplistic approach to it and they don't vote on it. Uh, well, who, who knows? I mean, I think you got a lot of things. I, I think what you say has merit. Um, 
But I think it depends as it, how Walker does in the debates or in other public appearances about well, po- foreign policy. Right? I think, he has to be credible. He has right. to like know where Russia is. And as is somebody, on the map, et as somebody associated with the Bush campaign put it, and I think this makes some sense, is that if you think about the Republican primary voter, many of them are watching Fox News, and if you watch Fox News, you see a lot of pieces about ISIS and about the threat from ISIS, and so foreign policy and the threats that are at every door are a constant source of of agitation for those voters. And so I think you could imagine a situation in which strength and the the feeling like the person who's in there could handle it when ISIS, you know, comes rushing up to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I think you could imagine that playing a bigger role than you might otherwise think. It might be a flawed theory, but um, can I propose a lightning round for the debates? I think they should do like a super fast Sunni versus Shiite test on various groups, just like throw different things at uh, the candidates. I, I myself would probably fail this test. Meaning what? Like What's the difference between the Sunni? Who's a Sunni and who's a Shiite? Yeah, exactly. Like the Houthis, ISIS, Saudi Arabia, everybody. Just like throw everyone in there. The Shabab. Anyway, I don't want to have to take the test, but I want them to all pass it. It really? seems important. I don't think so. I guess on that, the foreign policy stuff, though, if you're saying who can make a decision, who can be in the White House and sort of you know, handle the stress and has had to do that before. If you're a governor, you ha- that's a much more credible case than Rubio could ever make. Rubio has opinions about foreign policy and he has uh, ideological views about foreign policy. He, he certainly can't make a credible case that he's ever ex- you know, run anything significant or had to make those kinds of decisions. I think, that, I think that's, that's right. But, and it's interesting also because Nixon made the experience case too and he hadn't when you when you don't come out of a war generation and don't have the military service in your resume, it robs you. Well, two things have changed. One, the country looks at the Senate differently than they used to. They used to think of the Senate, the Senate as a place the presidents came from and not governors, at least in the Republican Party. Now it's kind of flipped. And when you had that military background, it was a proxy for kind of being able to handle things in a pinch, whether you actually faced what Kennedy did or not. And so um, if you think about three recent McCain, Kerry... Dole, all strong, strong foreign policy guys, yeah. all with military experience, just didn't they were running against running against executives and didn't Yeah. It's a good point. And it. better politicians, yeah. So John, you didn't or Emily, one of you, what's Rubio's path? Oh. So what how does he get there? Oh, that's a John question. Well, no, I sure. th- that's so my so it's what I think you hit it at, which is the flame out. So Bush it just isn't acceptable to much beyond the the kind of East Coast Republican moderates, Rubio shows. I mean, this is a great test. If the, if Rubio is the trying, they're all all these first term senators are trying the Obama route in one way or another. And David Axelrod in his book writes about this theory that he told Obama, which is as you show competency in the campaign, people will start to judge you and see you as being more presidential. So if you don't have a bunch of like achievements in the executive uh, experience category. Uh, before running, that people will think you've gotten it if you just survive long enough. So let's imagine that the on the writer side of the Republican spectrum, there's a massive pileup between Huckabee and Santorum and Cruz and, and Paul, and they just all carve each other up. Rubio is acceptable to a lot of those constituents, except for the hard anti, um, what they would call amnesty voters. So he picks up a lot of them after the crack up. And then 
on the establishment side, they think, oh, you know, Rubio, like he's shown himself to have this. Me- he has this medal. He's gotten through this crazy campaign. He he has what it takes for that job. And Bush, gee, the country's so sick of Bushes. And and, you know, that negates what we would love to be able to say, which is, oh, we are so sick of the Clintons. She is, you know, she makes everybody cranky. What about this new guy who's shown enough meddle in the campaign to be able to make a plausible case that he could do it in the job, do the job. So let's get behind him. So it requires him to kind of, he requires some good stuff to happen for him to, to win. Emily, do you think, do you think he's going to be the nominee? I have no idea. I mean, I, it seems to me like he and Walker are, I, I just kind of prematurely write off Bush. I feel like in the end they're going to get bored with him and he's going to either stumble or be just lackluster. So that's my guess. What do you think? Yeah, I, th- I agree with that. I agree with that. I think it's I think it's Walker or, or Rubio. I mean, I, I felt like I I'd kind Walker. of forgotten about him until this week, and then as he came off the shelf, I was like, "Oh yeah, you, you're really appealing." But I already went on about that. We yeah, go please go on more. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. but I meant it nice. in a different way this time. Like, if you're everybody's second choice and you're actually a really good second choice, and all the first choices start to crack, then everyone can kind of converge around you, right? Okay, the GapFest is brought to you this week by the University of California, committed to advancing the world through discovery. Research at the University of California led to more than 1,700 new inventions last year, an average of nearly five a day. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. The University of California, the power of public. And now for today's featured research. California's Salinas Valley, a lush landscape known as the salad bowl of the world, produces 70% of the nation's lettuce, along with bountiful strawberries, broccoli, and other cool weather crops. But there's a dangerous downside to this agricultural abundance. Research from UC Berkeley scientist Brenda Eskenazi found that prenatal exposure to airborne pesticides increases the risk that women will give birth to children with developmental and learning disabilities. The implications are profound, not just for Salinas, but for agricultural communities around the world. To read this story and uncover more groundbreaking innovations by the University of California, visit slate.com slash breakthroughs. Iran, the president capitulated this week to reality. He said he would sign a bill giving Congress a say in the Iran nuclear deal. It was a bipartisan bill pushed by Bob Corker, a Republican from Tennessee, um, uh, Menendez, a Democrat from New Jersey, and Ben Cardin, a Democrat from Maryland. And they had veto-proof support for this bill. So what would this bill do, Emily? Uh-oh. I was like, So what would this bill do, me? John? <laughs> I'm all for this bill, even though I don't entirely understand what it would do, although there's like waiting periods. Congress gets to have a say. Is oh, you're for point. waiting periods now, but not for abortion. I see. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm for Congress deciding with the president whether to lift sanctions. I am for not just completely um, executive power in this important foreign power sphere. On the other hand, I really hope that that Congress doesn't screw this up. Uh, John? They get 30 days to vote whether the sanctions go away. The problem is for them that if they vote not to lift the sanctions, the president can still veto that. And then all he would need is 34 members of his own party. Right. So it's like a weak amount of congressional support he needs. But I mean, I agreed with Cardin or Corker, who said if you can't get 34 votes, like you yeah, it's shouldn't a bad do bill. This. Yeah. But wasn't how yeah. is this different from what there was before? Because presumably before had the Senate could have passed a bill saying we forbid you forbidding the president from raising sanctions. And he could have vetoed that and they would have needed 66 
to override. I don't see what this changes. It's a good question. Um, it changed the original bill. I guess the the original bill they were going to pass was before the deal was done, and they were arguing that if you pass it, if you pass a bill before the negotiations are done, it, it's going to get in the way of the negotiations. And they said, but if we don't pass a bill before the negotiations are done, the momentum from the negotiations are going to change the circumstances, and we're not going to get our say. So, I mean, basically, they were trying to set the rules for debate afterwards. But why did they have to set the rules for debate afterwards? Why couldn't they have just done it before? I don't have an answer to that. I mean, why couldn't they have just followed the regular? I guess because what they want is, here's what it is. They want to they wanna knock the deal down before it gets signed. And so in, one, in, your, in the one scenario, the deal gets signed and it's in place. And, they could then, and then it's U.S. The policy. And but then this, after the fact, they would have to fight the president. Right. This is an effort to get it before... Right. Um, it becomes it it's before it gets written That's in it. ink, That's which it. is right. We want Congress to have a say before in this matter. And the other thing that's much better about this bill than some of the proposed versions was they took out some of the like Christmas tree ornaments they were trying to hang on it, which were not relevant to this particular deal. Right. Like Iran has to recognize Israel. The president has to constantly certify that it's not a terrorist nation. This stuff that was just like sort of anti-Iran as a. As an idea, as a country. What, what is it that got the Senate to essentially unanimously agree to this? Is it that the Senate's, senators really believe they have a role in this? They wanted to protect their prerogatives? They hate the deal? All of the above? I think all of the above. I, what strikes me, I think this is right. What strikes me is that they've had all these behind the scenes, totally top secret briefings from the State Department and from the White House. The White House made an unprecedented lobbying effort and nobody was convinced so, in, in other words, you sometimes think like, okay, in the back, in the in what the. What does that mean that nobody was convinced? Well, I mean, they weren't convinced to to say to Corker and Cardin, "Hey, lay off this deal, like, let it go," because it, because like the administration's got this handled; they know what they're doing. Because that's what the president would have preferred. Well, so but it was clear that no Republican would ever say that. So it was the audience for that was the Democratic True. Caucus. Yeah, and, but and so they couldn't get. You know what I, you know, half the Democrats to say, yeah, lay off it. And presumably that's because they they think they have an actual job to do. They have an actual job, yeah. and they 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 think it's a hard decision. And also they, well, I they, don't know, it's, the argument from the administration was it was going to imperil the deal. If if you muck about with this too much, you imperil our chance to really strike a, a useful and important deal here. And what what at least one military person who is ex military who is involved with this set of issues when they were in the military at a rather high level, was arguing on the military side. And there's a Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, has a different view, which is that you could handle, you could blow up the, the Iranian uh, nuclear program in four days and there would be uh, no, it would be easy. Uh, he didn't use the word easy, but he sure suggested it. The other view is that you can do something militarily and it maybe knocks them back a year or two. But then you've closed off all possibility of negotiation. They are going to work even harder to get the bomb. And you can't really, again, you're only getting a year or two. You're not, there's militarily. Yeah, then you have to go back a year or two later yeah. and do some other so there's, bombing. Ugh. Emily, does this feel like it's a huge loss for the president or, or not? I mean, I, 
to me, like, I the, the people, so. I, I think the argument the president was making, sorry, I, I'm going to answer my own question. <laughs> you answer the your argument own that the president was making was, oh, don't you interfere with our, exactly. don't you mess like with our, our negotiations moment, right? with your democracy. <laughs> and it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it co- you, of course, should have anyone who tells you to, to, to get out of it and not have, not engage in the basic civic process that has guided the country the past 200 years should really be quiet that was it that's a that is not a persuasive argument so but didn't you feel like he was briar rabbit saying don't throw me into the briar patch like don't interfere at all and then they ended up with a bill which is like pretty pro deal in the end and then he like grudgingly accepts it as like the you know least bad option but in fact it's so much of a better option than what he could have expected and where they started i mean there's no way that bibi netanyahu who is the arch enemy of this deal thinks this bill is strong enough well they were yeah they were claiming it as a victory but i think you're i don't know because, i don't know like they have to politically there's i yeah, just yeah, feel yeah, like yeah, yeah. they could have yeah. You know, they could have said, like, absolutely not. And and for, I expected so much more opposition. I actually feel like whatever is going on in those secret briefings, this deal is looking better to, to senators and policymakers and military officers than um, than I expe- than they expected. Interesting. That's- right. Right. And presumably— the Although, pres- by the way, the deal's totally not—I mean— the deal. It has problems. But yeah, it has issues. I mean, I thought David, was it David Sanger? The Times, whoever it was in the Times, said that the president's analogy was that this was like a closing on a house, uh, but then you have to wait till the contract is closed. Yeah, I guess like agreeing. Swiss cheese. And the inspection. And the inspection. Right. But I mean, but the, but the Times <laughs> said, no, this is like, you know, agreeing to buy a house while they're still building the house. I mean, so it's like there's still arguments over where the windows and doors are going to go. Um and there's or even a great like deal. the electrical wiring, yeah, the furnace. The centrifuges, <laughs> and I don't call underground. It'll deep be really interesting to see how, like, I don't see how you square the differences between the Ayatollah and what John Kerry is saying in terms of, like, when the san- when the sanctions get well, lifted and who gets to do see, the. But you're I feel that's all, all posturing. Yeah. No, no, I understand yeah, I it's posturing, but here's so the deal. No, I, I, the- I know, but like when you're the Ayatollah, the distance between posturing and at your actual view is pretty short. I mean, that's the deal with what? being a They've fundamentalist. Been saying, down with America forever, well, yeah. and all well, of a sudden I guess they're celebrating that, I guess this deal. Yeah, all right, that's true. Right. Except that isn't like really do you like you're the Ayatollah? You tell the country we're not going to accept any deal that has this in it, and then when you do, that's doesn't... the glory of being an autocrat. Yeah, you can yeah. Say I mean, yeah, it's not like he's going to lose the Iowa caucus. Day. But um, all right, well, I guess I'm naive about the Ayatollah. It's time to hear from one of the other great podcasts on the Panoply Network. I'm Baratunde Thurston. I'm Raquel Cepeda. I'm Janet Colby. On our next episode of our national conversation about conversations about race, we talk about the brutal police killing of Walter Scott in South Carolina and ask, will something really change? Do black lives actually matter? We address Kendrick Lamar's announcement about his wife-to-be and the dark-skinned activist who went in on him because she's not dark at all. Colorism still alive. And finally, we deal with Mindy Kaling's brother, Vijay Chokalingam, who pretended to be black in order to get into medical school 17 years ago to prove that affirmative action doesn't work and is wrong. Is he right? We'll talk about that as well. Check out our national conversation about conversations about race on Panoply.
let's go to uh, cocktail chatter when you're drinking a, a bloody Ayatollah on the porch. Uh, that's got to be a drink. There's got to be a drink with Ayatollah in it. It's a great what, word. What are you going to be chattering about? Yeah, it's one of those words which we never knew that Americans had never heard of before 1978. And then all of a sudden, there are Ayatollahs everywhere. Yeah. Emily, what are you chattering about? I am reading a book about Iran. This is like the perfect segue. It's segue. called The Lonely War. <laughs> segue, segue, segue. It's by Nazila Fathi, who is a longtime New York Times journalist, and it's a memoir. So Fathi is Iranian. She is um, one of those really interesting and rare journalists who is completely native to the place that she has ended up covering for a major institution. And she made that transition from like translator to stringer to correspondent, which I'm super interested in that all on its own. And I'm just learning so much um, from reading her perspective on Iran. On Iran, David, you actually might really like this book since you um, love the country of Iran so much. She has a kind of middle class, anti-cleric perspective from her own family that's sort of familiar from your descriptions of Iran. But I also think she – what my favorite part is like her dealings with the intelligence ministry and figuring out how to kind of get around the state apparatus, which is on its face – First of all, you know, completely subjugating women as she grows up, but also anti-Western journalist. And yet she sort of makes it through and does an amazing amount of coverage until, that is, she gets expelled from the country after um, covering the 2009 protests. So I haven't gotten to that part yet. But um, it's really good. Uh, The Lonely War by Nazila Fathi. Okay. John. What's your chatter? Well, well, my chatter, we talked about at the top of the show, so I feel a little silly. But I just wanted to say thanks to all the um, amazing GabFest listeners who um, sent me notes and tweeted and uh, were just um, incredibly generous with their remarks about um, my exciting new job. And uh, I'm glad we're you know still going to be in conversation. I, so I just want to like shout out to all of you because um, – it was really, it was really heartwarming, and um, and and our friends over on the Culture Gab Fest were like, I mean, I, I they were just sweeter than I didn't. They were, I didn't they were know sweeter pe- than you deserve. I, it's true. I, I, I worry. I, I feel like I should be going to people and saying, no, no, I'm like, I'm a total horrible person. You're like, this is. It was so incredibly sweet, and this is going to be a big piece of business. So it's nice to know you've got people uh, at your back, and that's. We are um, all rooting for you. It well, is true. It's very. Um, it's really, really, really humbling, which is a word and thing people say like, at times like this, and it feels totally empty. But in this case, it's totally, totally true. So thank you to everybody who, um, who's out there and who's listening and who's um, on our side. All right. And you don't have a piece of chatter that's some obscure historical artifact that you're going to natter on about? That's <laughs> shocking. Well, well, I thought I'd give everybody a break for once. I don't know. I think your fans are going to desert you immediately. Yeah. Well, I'll come up with two things to natter about next time. <laughs> I have a chatter. I read a story this week in the New York Times that just made me so upset. And uh, I think it was very important. So it's a story of um, a man named Henry Rahans. I'm not sure exactly how you say it. He's a nine-term state legislator, Republican in Iowa. He's a farmer. And he married late in life. He was married earlier. And he married late in life a woman named Donna Lou Rahans. And he married her around 2007. In 2014, she was suffering from dementia, from Alzheimer's, and was in a nursing home. And he, Henry Rahans, apparently, on at least one occasion, there's, there's debate about 
how often and under what circumstances, had sex with his wife, this woman who had dementia. And he had sex with her after a point at which she had daughters from a previous marriage. Her daughter from previous marriage who had significant influence on her care and a doctor had said, well, she can't, she can no longer consent to having sex. And so he shouldn't have sex with her. And Henry Rahans, a 78-year-old man who by all accounts loves his wife, was, you know, you know, is married to her, you know, cares for her and has taken active part of his care, has been charged with felony sexual abuse for having sex with his wife. And there's this question about whether if you were somebody with severe dementia, can you consent to sex? And, and what is the responsibility of institutions who house people with dementia towards these folks who may want to have sex? And there may be it may be awkward. It may be something. It's clearly something that children don't want to talk to their parents about. They don't want to have conversations where they acknowledge their parents' sexuality. Especially sometimes these are cases in with the Rayhans case where it's a second marriage, is late in life marriage, and so it's not even your mother and father who are having sex. It's these these uh, your your father having sex with someone who is who's not your mother at all, with a girlfriend or a new wife. And I just think this is a this is like a profound rights issue touch is incredibly important to all of us. It is so important that people have sexual fulfillment, whether they're, you know, 18 or 78 and whether they have dementia or not. And I hope this guy wins his case and I hope it becomes a, a, a point at which causes us to have a discussion about this and the rights of the rights of all people to have sex and not. And that, that this idea of consent here is just so it's not that you can't imagine a situation where someone would rape somebody who had dimension where that couldn't, you know, that wouldn't be an issue. But I think the presumption has to be so far in one direction, especially when you're talking about a spouse, that we permit it, encourage it, make it easier for people to to have sex when they're old and in institutions. And I, in fact, so I explicitly why? on this moment in this public, I give my wife permit. If I ever have dimension, dementia, I give my wife permission to have sex with me whenever she wants. Like that mm, is explicit. I'm sure Hannah will super appreciate that. I already go, told her privately. Yeah. So right. I'm just put, now making it publicly. Do you put this in the living will? I mean, is that uh, does I wonder if that as to bring this back to the practical uh, view here. I mean, is that the kind of thing? Does this happen I, enough that you know. would want to Maybe put it should. in a living will? Maybe you should. There, there, a I great have a question. Why are you – so let's add one more fact about this woman, which was that she had just been given a test about the meaning of words. And she didn't know what the color blue meant. She couldn't recognize the word sock. Like she was far along in her dementia. Yeah. OK. I just want yeah. to add that. So here's my question. Why – I presume when you're talking about people's right – to sexual fulfillment. You're talking about her right as well as his, obviously, right? You're seeing it through her eyes as Correct. well as her husband's eyes. So why do you feel certain that she wanted this to happen? Like that sort of – it didn't seem to me like we from the story actually knew that. But why do you feel – why is that your hunch? Well, it's very hard to know whether she wanted it to happen. That Apparently, as I read in this article, there are ways in which staffs at nursing homes try to gauge whether people are happy with sexual – Activity yeah, that, that was people really with dementia have, like you know, do they do they seem to be smiling? Do they? I, I can't remember what the measurements are, but they look out for people with dementia after they've had sex and try to discern whether the person appears to feel happy about what has just happened. And I don't know whether in this case, whether with with Donnelly Rahans, whether anyone did that. Maybe they didn't, and it may be, or it may be. Although there was no evidence presented in the story that she appeared upset at all by it. I guess I think if it's a spouse and there is not any contrary evidence that that she was unhappy about it, that you kind of have to assume 
there's satisfaction. This is a man who loves his wife. He is, there's evidence that he loves his wife. He cares deeply for his wife. There's strong evidence of that. He is a faithful husband in, in taking care of her and being with her and visiting her. And so shouldn't the presumption – and there's was, there was evidence that she felt the same way about him. So shouldn't your presumption when thinking about whether this is a crime be that actually this is, this is something which they – want to do we have no reason to th- we have no reason to believe they wouldn't want to do it and therefore why are we why are we interfering in it so i mean if if it was when, if he wasn't a husband if he wasn't there every day if he wasn't uh, see i'm getting very nervous that you're emphasizing the spousal relationship because for many years in this country we had a marital rape exception you couldn't prosecute someone for raping their spouse and that was a really bad idea because it didn't allow for sexual assault prosecutions in cases of domestic abuse now i'm not saying there's any evidence of anything like this here i just want to hear the testimony from some neutral observers, those nursing home staff people, because, you know, I don't think the nursing home staff people are not neutral observers. Well, they're the best we have in this case because you have a daughter. Her daughter is, it seems like the force behind this case, right? The person who had tried to make sure she was her mother. I can't remember if she had gotten legal guardian rights, but she had definitely tried to intervene. And so in your reading of these facts, this daughter is suspicious unnecessarily of this loving husband because this daughter doesn't like her mother's remarriage to this guy or some reasons of her own. And maybe you're right about that. But maybe you're not. Maybe this daughter saw that her mother was so completely out of it that there is no way this could have been about her sexual fulfillment and instead was all about his. I just feel like I don't have enough facts to be so sure of the right outcome here. And I really don't want it to hinge on the fact that he was her husband. Well, that I don't think is it, not enough. Not, on I guess its I don't own. think it hinges on the fact that he's her husband. I think that that, but that's a that's a strongly a strong indicator. The fact that he's her husband and married her seven years ago and has been taking care of her indicates a level of commitment that you might not think if it was just the person who was in the bed next to her, the room next to her, and had known her for only known her in a demented state and only known her for three days. I think that depending on their relationship, that's why I want to hear from the nursing room staff. Like, was he loving and attentive to her needs, or was it all about him? His, well, the, what the, kinds of right? And all I have is one article, and the article indicates that he was loving and attentive and was. I guess I'm just. I think you are viewing this for the prism of a healthy, good marriage, and I just want to like check you on that and make sure we actually know enough. Not necessarily. No, I th- I'm viewing it from the perspective. If of, it was a bad marriage viewing, and he was all about his own needs, then this would be okay. It, mm, I don't know whether it would be okay. I am alarmed that with adults who have lived together and who have a history together and life experience together that the state could so easily step in and and make a make a crime out of something which you would think would be not only not a crime but the exact opposite of a crime but the, like the a, a great, you know the expression of love but it depends. It depends what he was doing. I know, what, it's the, not what, just the fact of their history and life experience together. It's what kind of history and life experience they have. And if you are right about him and his intentions and his love for her and his reading of her sexual appetite, which could completely still exist. You know, sexual appetite runs really deep. People who have dementia are still can take enjoyment in certain aspects of life. Maybe you're right about all of that. I just want to hear some more facts about this case before we decide. Well, of course you want to hear more facts you're about this case. Person. I just think it's I just <laughs> I think it's weird 
that we've gotten to the point where this is a case. Like that, it is not but, that but, weird. But th- it th- could think have, of how it could many think of how many people how many people are in nursing homes and presumably because of fears like this are being you know barred discouraged deprived of sexual activity that they basically deserve and that probably in the overwhelming majority of cases overwhelming majority are are cases of love and genuine you know feeling yeah maybe i don't know i would like some data about that too the other thing i want to take on is yes being touched is something that is I almost universal, and you can completely imagine that people until the very end of their lives still want that. There are different ways to touch people. You don't have to have sexual intercourse with someone to give them some sense of love and physical intimacy through touch. That's true. But, you know, a lot of married couples tend to have sex. That is something that married couples I've do. I've that. That's a I've thing. That. It's very popular. And I remember my, when my grandmother, who was then quite far gone, she was very, very senile, like nothing – you know, she was very little left, only a tiny bit of language. The last time I saw her, uh, it was in fact, I took Hannah to visit her. So it was just before Hannah and I got married, I think. And I bent down to kiss her goodbye. And I kissed her goodbye. And she was so happy I had kissed her goodbye. She said to me, I know what you're up to. And it was clear she was flashing back to a moment of her youth. And I was some boy who was who was trying to make a move on her and had brought her so much pleasure. It is This is a moment I remember vividly in my own life and just how how much it must have meant to her at that moment to to you know to be seen as a sexual being in some sense and to to be young again it was great and it was all i i love that story i'm not sure i think it means that people who are who have dementia universally want to have sex i feel like there is a gap between that story and that claim i just people without dementia don't even want that Our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo, who's been like waving, circling at me for for minutes and minutes and minutes. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> the cocktail party is that over. Was the whole topic Everyone is gone. That was I'm so, so glad. John's leaned back in his chair and just let us go. At I'm it. so glad, Emily, that you're that you're uh, prude like that. I I basically had a lot of those feelings that you're having when I read the story, but the way you were talking about it made me nervous. Good. Uh, our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of Panoply Podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's Panoply. I was about to sell it, spell it, but I didn't. I listened to a great Panoply podcast today, which is the New York, speaking of sex, the New York Magazine has a new sex podcast, which is part of the Panoply Network, which Hannah recommended to me. It was great. You should listen to it. It's called Sex Lives from New York Magazine. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at slategabfest. Our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the Gabfest on iTunes. For Emily and John, I'm David Plotz. We'll be with you next week. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. 
Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 